Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Mayor Bill de Blasio, as well as Governor Cuomo of New York and President Trump alike, all pointed to extremist elements that infiltrated a number of the protests around the country as instigating much of the violence. It went so far as President Trump uh, recommending that Antifa, one of the groups that has been pinpointed, be uh, designated a terrorist organization. Joining us now to discuss this as well as next steps when it comes to the social unrest that we're seeing across the nation is Clint Watts, a distinguished Research Fellow at Foreign Policy Research Institute, also Senior Fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at George Washington University, and a former FBI agent in the counterterrorism units. Clint, so glad to be able to speak with you today. What do you make of these allegations that there were rogue anarchist factions that infiltrated the protests? Does that seem to hold truth to you based on what you know? Yeah, thanks for having me. I, you know, it, it creates this very uh, fuzzy and convenient narrative, I think, for a lot of leaders to just blame outsiders or extremists without getting into any specifics. And that can get really dangerous. It's not unheard of for any protest movement to have, regardless of the political orientation, some sort of uh, extremist element within it. Uh, that's conducting violence or trying to mobilize people to violence. And we've seen this over many decades. But the way it's been kind of carte blanche labeled as extremists or people from not here uh, becoming the agitators uh, really overplays, I think, to a degree that a lot of this is a protest movement, you know, that is based on something that we've seen over many years. Um, and that, yeah, sure, there are going to be people mobilizing towards violence, but I don't know what that group is. And so Antifa gets thrown in as a sort of label. But uh, having worked on this for a, a good while now and searching out information on Antifa, it is not the organized terrorist or extremist organization the way we tend to think of other groups in the past. And there's no real leader or specific organization. It's really just a collective name thrown onto a movement. So if you're law enforcement and you're trying to deal with this, I don't think it really uh, helps anything, and it's also not an official organization of any any real substantial size. Clint, how much staying power do you think some of these protests have? We've seen this in the past, unfortunately, um, when you know other African American uh, men have been subjected to um, you know police brutality or other issues along those lines. We've seen this in the past. How much staying power do you think this particular uh, movement has? I think in this case, there are a lot of other drivers that are keeping it going that we haven't seen before. One, a lot of people are out of work and have been for quite some time. And hostilities and political partisanship have really divided the country over the last two to three months. Uh, I think the second thing is you got extreme economic inequality right now. You know, you have uh, markets at a very high level at a time when unemployment is at an all-time high, you know, at least in my lifetime. And then you add on to that, it's an election year. You've got a powder keg like I've not seen in in any time in, since I've been born, which will potentially power these movements. You've also seen a very uh, militarized and uh, aggressive response to the protest in certain cities. Uh, you've seen journalists being targeted or attacked, potentially. 
And you've seen this also take off in social media at a time when our foreign adversaries are trying to amplify and show discord inside the United States, and there's plenty of available content to do that. So I think this could go on for quite some time, just looking at how many factors are compounding at the same time. So what could actually be done to stop it? Usually the the solution for this is cool heads and leadership. And sadly, we're not at a point in our country right now uh, where that's coming to fold. You're seeing, actually, you're seeing politicians calling for use of extreme force on protesters, not sort of uh, let's have some calm and, and come together. On several occasions yesterday, you did see uh, law enforcement leaders, sheriffs, you know, police chiefs, trying to walk with the protesters, trying to demobilize. You've also seen protesters uh, turning on the more extremist elements who are, you know, doing property damage or trying to incite violence. And so you're seeing some pushback that gets less coverage uh, in the news and gets less social media shares, but it is out there. So what I'm hoping is that uh, the political leaders won't use this divisiveness for their own political gain and realize that we're really at a turning point in the country where there's such distrust between uh, law enforcement and the public, uh, between institutions, the elected leaders and the public, that we're really at a dangerous point where my biggest concern right now is, you know, it's been 20 plus years since we had uh, Oklahoma City bombing. Um, But the conditions uh, for this from many different directions are very high right now in terms of the outbreak of large swaths of violence or Uh, very specific attacks on institutions, officials, law enforcement, or the public. Um, So I'm worried right now uh, in ways I've never been worried before. Glenn, I got to say, I think we all are worried. And I will just say, Paul, in full disclosure, there was a pretty serious altercation outside my apartment building that I was watching. And there were just as many individuals uh, on the protest side who were carrying away fellow protesters to de-escalate the situation. And you saw uh, police officers also showing restraint. I mean, there were a lot of responsible actors too. And I think that it is true, Paul, that we often do not cover that as much because it's not the thing that stands out from the whole uh, scenario, but definitely is something that exists. Yeah. Clint, just one final thing here. I mean, much like the pandemic, the response to the pandemic, we're not seeing much leadership at the federal level here as it relates to these uh, civil issues. It's kind of left to governors and really to the mayors, the frontline mayors. Is that problematic in and of itself? I think it is at this point because these are cities, towns, mayors, governors that have been under intense stress for three months and their resources have already been uh, absolutely you know, plundered responding to COVID-19. And so if you look at uh, New York City, this is three straight months of intense stress on the public system. Uh, law enforcement and emergency responders are fighting a twin battle. You know, uh, you've got the pandemic on one side and you've got this sort of uh, – uh, protest movements and spikes of violence on the other, and they're exhausted and worn out. And you look at healthcare workers, uh, they've been fighting a battle for the country over the last three months. If you look at law enforcement first responders, they've been tied up in this. And so I think nerves are, are frayed and, and tensions are going to remain high uh, because we've asked a lot of these public servants. And at the same point, the public uh, needs our help. And you can see that with the protest that are out there, we've had a serious problem about uh, uh, African-Americans dying, you know, over many years. And it's really come to a head, I think, at this point. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Clint Watts, thank you so much for joining us. Clint Watts is a distinguished research fellow uh, for the Foreign Policy Research Institute, also a senior fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security uh, at George Washington University. He's also the author of the book Messing with the Enemy, giving us some much-needed perspective on uh, this rising civil unrest that has uh, once again uh, gripped this country and uh, sweeping across the country, and we'll keep up to date on that news. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, there are so many cross currents for investors to discount these days. It's just been an extraordinary time in the markets. Of course, the pandemic and the economic fallout from the pandemic we've now had over the weekend, uh, you know, rising levels of civil unrest that we've not seen in this country for decades. And and now even with the U.S.-China trade deal, we have that phase one deal, but it looks like that could be uh, facing some rough water. So really some major, major cross currents for uh, markets to digest. To get a sense of what's happening uh, in the currency markets, most liquid markets, we welcome Dr. Win Thin, Global Head, Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. Uh, Win, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a sense of how the currency markets have been digesting all of these cross currents of news just really over the last several days as we take a look at some of the major currencies. Of course. Well, first of all, thanks again for, for having me on. Um, it's always a pleasure. Uh, you know, like, the, like other markets, I think, as you mentioned, there's just so many things digest. Um, you know, I think we've had these bouts of risk on, risk off mostly tied to the U.S.-China tensions. Uh, you know, I think last, late last week, it looked like President Trump was going to hold a press conference on Friday. He's going to announce some you know, very significant measures. Markets got very nervous. Equities fell. Dollar strengthened. But it turned out to be much ado about nothing. Um, and I think uh, what this signals to us, to the FX markets, is that despite all his tough talk, uh, Mr. Trump is, is, I think, unwilling to risk going down that road of, of trade war again. Uh, you know, we saw how, how harmful it was for the markets last year. And going into the elections in November, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's a very risky strategy and something he stepped back. That said, I think what I think was interesting is that China basically gave him a reminder that he's playing a very weak hand. Uh, just overnight, China, it was uh, reportedly uh, Chinese authorities um, instructed their importers not to, uh, to, 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 to pause their purchases of soybeans and perhaps pork from the U.S. So uh, there's still risks ahead. Um, but it t- appears that U.S.-China tensions may not be as bad as, as previously thought. That's uh, negative for the dollar. That's, that's positive for emerging markets and, and, um, and sort of the growth-sensitive currencies such as the dollar block and Scandies. So we're seeing now the dollar the weakest versus a basket of its peer currencies since early March. I'm struggling to understand, is this just a risk on trade or is this some sort of comment on the U.S. deficit uh, and policy? Well, it's hard to separate the two. Um, I think the main drivers for the currency markets is the, is the relative uh, stance of the central banks. And, and really, the dollar's been on its back foot ever since the Fed took very, very aggressive action since March uh, to basically have unlimited QE, um, zero rates, you know, direct lending to the corporate sector. All that is, is I, I think, positive for the U.S. economy long term, but near term negative for the dollar. Now, why do I say near term? Well, I think other central banks are going to go down that road. Uh, the ECB meets Thursday. They're widely expected to increase their QE um, by 500 billion euros. Other central banks have really gone down the similar road. Um, but you know, for now, uh, the dollar seems to be being punished the most. We saw that back uh, during the financial crisis. I think there'll be some catch up. But to your point, there are other negatives now that are sort of looming ahead. One is the, for sure the fiscal deficit of the U.S. 
these tensions, I'm not quite sure how to play them, and I don't think the market quite knows how to play them. We know there's going to be social costs, economic costs, political costs, but they're not quite clear at this point. So, Dr. Thin, I mean, I'm looking at the yuan right now at uh, 7.127. How much of a deal, big deal, should we make out of that, the yuan being above what is historically its, its seven level in terms of pegging? Well, I think all eyes were on, uh, on that pair last week when it was threatening to, to breach the 720 level. You know, these are levels we haven't seen since last September when you know, really we're at the, tr- the height of the trade war. So we're still elevated. Um, you know, we're off that high. But you know, to me, it tells me that, okay, markets aren't quite, quite on board with the, okay, the tensions are off the, off the table. Um, it's something to keep an eye on. Um, but if you look elsewhere, the emerging market currents are saying, okay, you know, full speed ahead, we're, you know, things are looking good. You know, to me, the thing, I, you know, I'm always – I, you know, sort of always look for the sort of contrarian uh, viewpoint. And to me, is look, things tensions are okay, but you know, and China's data is 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 is, is stabilizing. But we had data out of uh, Korea overnight. Exports and imports are both contracting over 20% year over year still in May, despite what seems to be a, a stabilizing in, in China. So, my only warning to everyone who's piling onto this risk trade is that. You know, we're far, far, far from, you know, actual growth. You know, we have still the risk of a second wave. But even without that, the the global economy still has a big hole to dig out of. And I'm not so optimistic as some of these markets are saying. So what's your highest conviction call right now? Uh, My highest conviction call? Um, I would, at this point, uh, be lightening up EM. I I don't think this is where EM should be, given these risks I decided. So I think this this rally in emerging market currencies is overdone. Uh, Brazilian real, Turkish lira, South African rand, these are all very risky currencies that you really have no business being at levels they are right now. So, you know, the worst may be behind us, but again, you know, it's, it's happy days are, are still very far away from us. Uh, Wynn, how do you feel about some of the European currencies here, looking at the, uh, the pound uh, and the euro uh, up, uh, showing some strength today? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's another, that's probably my second highest conviction call, and that's that sterling is overdone. Uh, look, we have the, the next round of Brexit deal, uh, Brexit talks begin this week, virtually, between the EU and, and the UK. They're very, very far apart on a deal. They, the last meeting the, um, back in May, if, if anything, took a step backwards, because hard feelings, feelings were very hurt coming out of that, and that's not a way to, to go forward. So I think markets are underestimating. The, the, the risk of a hard Brexit. The transition period ends in December 31st. If they can't come up with some, quarter, some sort of deal before then, uh, UK goes crashing out. It's going to be very disruptive. Um, you know, I think the, the pound tells me that the, the current levels say that some sort of deal or extension is being priced in. Um, but given how you know, the, the UK is already dealing with the, the pandemic and the U, EU too, and to think that they can get some sort of complicated trade deal done by the end of the year is, to me, is very, very optimistic and I think misguided. Winthin, thank you so much for being with us. Global Head of Currency Strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman. I got to say, hearing Brexit actually fills me with nostalgia. And I know that <laughs> yes, it's exactly. ridiculous, but I, I actually want to be talking about Brexit right now, uh, given some of the other issues at hand. Right. Really interesting, though, to hear uh, Dr. Thin's ideas on emerging market currencies right now, because that trade does seem to be gaining steam. A lot of people okay. saying that the, it, the, the declines in the currencies had been overdone. And yet here we are facing a lot of unknowns at a time when people are, are moving out of the dollar and into these riskier assets. This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. 
We don't talk enough about REITs, but that has certainly been an area where investors have consistently looked for uh, dividend returns, yield returns. To get a sense of what's going on in that market, given all the uncertainty we are seeing across asset classes, we're welcome to have uh, Eamon Brevenlu, Lead Portfolio Manager of High Income Equities and Global REITs at TCW. TCW, as you may know, is a huge firm out on the West Coast, $212 billion an assets firm wide. Uh, Amen, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us a sense of how REITs uh, as uh, a group have performed over the last several months when we've seen just unprecedented volatility. Uh, sure. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, uh, as you said, the sector has been extremely volatile. Uh, the sector as a whole is down about 20% year to date, uh, lagging the S&P by about 15%. Uh, so it's definitely underperformed by a very meaningful amount. Well, let's talk about the bifurcation within the REIT segment. We have, for example, commercial real estate in major cities under pressure as people work from home and amid a host of other issues, raising questions about the centers of cities. And then you have more suburban areas. Where do you see the value right now? Well, that's a great question. And thank you for asking that. You know, bifurcation is, is definitely correct. Uh, you know, people think of, of REITs and real estate perhaps as, as a uniform group and they're anything but. Uh, <clears throat> so within the space, data centers and towers have actually outperformed very meaningfully. Uh, they're up about 20%. Um, well, as you would imagine, you know, those sectors that are closer to the epicenter of the, uh, of the pandemic, things like regional malls or hotels, uh, you know, down 50%, 45% year to date. Um, you know, our viewpoint is that uh, the pandemic has really accelerated uh, certain secular trends that were in the midst of being played out. And, uh, you know, we envision that the same dynamics are going to essentially prevail over the at least medium to long term here. Um, so, you know, we continue to see the, the, the towers, the data centers, the industrial space as, as benefiting from substantial tailwinds, uh, while, you know, retail really in all forms uh, being really challenged. So let's talk about office space. You know, this pandemic has changed the way uh, many uh, work, a lot more working from home here. How are you thinking about the office space segment? Is that a net winner or a net loser as we come out of this pandemic, do you think? Yeah, you know, so that's, uh, that's a big question out there in the, in the, you know, in the sector. Uh, you know, my personal belief is that there are going to be net losers. Um, I think, uh, by and large, the success of work from home models has, has really surprised people. Um, you know, I envision that, uh, you know, going forward, that there's going to be less demand for uh, CBD, you know, central business district uh, office space. And I think that's going to really put pressure on pricing and rents uh, for, for those landlords. What about multifamily homes, apartment buildings? Uh, yeah, so, so similarly, Lisa, I think the, uh, uh, you know, the, the demand there uh, from a secular standpoint is likely to be strong. But uh, I believe that the central business district versus periphery, periphery uh, mix might be impacted. Um, I mean, you know, you're seeing, uh, you know, the protests, of course, on TV, uh, you know, uh, pretty graphic videos being shared. Uh, the first order effects are, 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 are pretty clear, you know, with regards to retail and the damage that that's going to cause there. Um, you know, increased concessions uh, uh, on behalf of tenants uh, from landlords. Um, I think the secondary impact there is going to be, uh, you know, certainly if the protests persist, uh, perhaps a tilting of the premium, uh, you know, central business district over periphery, um, that premium may not be as pronounced on a go-forward basis. 
So how about some of the, we've heard stories about businesses not being able to pay their rent. And, you know, ultimately, you know, as we head into the third month here, ultimately that impacts uh, some REITs. Where are you seeing signs of stress uh, in the REIT market right now? Wow, yeah. So it's really uh, uh, all over, you know, except for those areas that do benefit from, uh, you know, work from home models. So, uh, you know, except uh, for um, towers, data centers and industrials, uh, industrials, you can think of these as, as warehouses, owners to, you know, things like Amazon distribution centers right. and so, so forth. Uh, it's really been everywhere, uh, Paul. So the uh, office space, uh, you know, is in the midst of being redefined. Um, the uh, uh, retail, is, you know, as we mentioned, is in the epicenter. Hotels and lodging, uh, for sure, you know, all leisure uh, activities essentially ceased. Uh, so I think these are questions that are going to be answered over, you know, over kind of a near to medium term time frame. Uh, you know, how much demand destruction is there? Thanks for listening to the uh, Bloomberg the P&L podcast. Open, you can subscribe uh, you know, and listen to interviews at Apple back, Podcasts you know, or whatever podcast platform like. you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. We're going to revert back to those long-term secular drivers that have really driven the space. You know, things like big data and mobility, you know, these are big trends impacting the broader markets. E-commerce, also certain nascent themes, such as artificial intelligence, you know, autonomous driving technology, um, you know, th- those are really the things that I think uh, over a long term have the potential to shape, uh, you know, the dynamics within real estate. We have to get you back on a lot more to talk about, including low interest rates and how that may also affect the picture in demand for a variety of different real estate. Iman Bryvin Liu, thank you so much for being with us, lead portfolio manager of TCW High Income Equities and TCW Global REITs. Definitely a uh, a, a multifaceted area, the real estate investment trust yeah. area, as not all real estate is even. I will say it has been notably positive outside of cities in terms of demand for housing in terms of people not wanting to sell their homes and a lot of people wanting to buy them. It'll be interesting to see whether that continues as the downturn uh, makes its way forward. A lot of unknowns right now, Paul. Yeah, a lot of people fleeing cities, Lisa, going for the suburbs, uh, whether it's you know short-term rentals or long-term buys, a little bit of demand there coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, although we've seen this movie before. <laughs> yeah. Don't count New York City or all the big right. cities out just yet. This is Bloomberg Markets with Lisa Abramowitz and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the COVID pandemic has acted as an accelerant on a lot of trends that were in effect ahead of this debacle or crisis, however you want to put it. And there is a question about the advertising sector and particularly online, what it has done in that space. Joining us now is Scott Kessler, Global Sector Lead for Technology, Media and Telecommunications at Third Bridge in New York. Scott, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start there. And you've talked a little bit about how we're seeing that acceleration in a sea change amid online advertising. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing? Yeah, thanks a lot, Lisa. Um, So, you know, at Third Bridge, what we do is we talk with C-level executives and industry experts to get a sense of what's going on in the world and try to understand what's going to happen next. And based on the conversations that we have, it's pretty obvious that in March we saw lockdowns across the country that caused a lot of advertisers to retrench and retrench very significantly. And so we saw demand for advertising and related pricing um, really declining precipitously and bottoming out um, to a large extent 
in March. We've seen um, continuing improvement, it seems, um, through, say, the last week or two. Um, and the question really now is how strong will the rebound be? The people we're talking to indicate that it might take a while next year back until we see uh, a stronger um, resurgence in demand for even uh, digital and social media advertising. So, Scott, you've been covering the media and TMT space for decades. Is your sense here that this pandemic and the change in consumer behavior is is it really going to accelerate the death of more traditional media as a dollar shift from you know kind of on you know from uh, uh, analog to online? Yeah. So, Paul, the way I think that it makes sense to think about is, you know, we're talking to a lot of people, and I think all of them are in agreement on a couple of things. One is that what's happening now is causing um, advertisers to reexamine how they allocate capital for advertising purposes, and it's caused an acceleration to shift from traditional media uh, to digital media. And then in addition to that, um, it seems like folks are gravitating towards, you know, those large, very strong, and very impactful platforms like Google and like Facebook, and perhaps not as much so with ones that are more experimental in nature, like a Snapchat or a Twitter, for example. Scott, as we speak, we're speaking against a backdrop of growing tension on a host of different issues in this transforming world, including a lot of social tension. And we're seeing a lot of these online companies, these platforms come really uh, at the crosshairs of it. And I'm thinking of Twitter, for example, putting on a warning to one of President Trump's Twitter posts. What is the responsibility of these social media platforms in terms of deciding which advertisements they allow onto their site? Do they have an obligation on any level or, frankly, the right to say, we want this ad, we don't want that ad? Yeah. You know what, Lisa? It's the tough topic of our time at this point, among others. Um, And what I would say is that it seems like this is going to be a discussion that's going to take place, you know, not for days or weeks, but probably for months and months. I think it's fair to say, though, that this is something that people need to think about. And I don't have to be honest if it makes sense for letting consumers, so to speak, decide or if you know, the platforms have to become more involved in determining something is truthful and whether something needs to be fact-checked more comprehensively. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, your input as always. Scott Kessler, Global Sector Lead for Technology, Media, and Telecommunications at Third Bridge. Spent decades at S&P uh, as an analyst covering TMT. Knows what he's talking about. Lisa, I think you raised a, a really important point, and it's something you know Scott suggested that this industry needs to get ahead of very quickly because before the pandemic, there was growing, uh, you know, I think, uh, momentum for the social media industry and technology broader uh, to come under some regulatory scrutiny that maybe it had escaped in the past. Um, and to the extent that uh, they don't get their house in order, they definitely faced uh, some risk of greater federal, um, you know, I think, oversight.
Yeah, although I want to say that the message from markets has not been that. The rest message from markets has been the more that they are a free market platform and allow whatever, however, on their website – the better their platform rather the better right i mean we saw this with facebook versus twitter with response to how they addressed some of the more provocative statements from different leaders that's that's honestly in markets the answer was facebook did it right twitter did it wrong the social obligation piece whatever that may be and it's very controversial would have to come from a regulatory stance and that's very difficult to see happening in short order certainly heading into an election year certainly amid the backdrop of a recession so i think that that's sort of the calculus that we're seeing playing out in markets right now yeah, exactly right. Again, heading heading into the pan- pandemic, there was some uh, building momentum for some regulation that obviously, because of all the other things going on, Lisa has taken a, a, a back uh, a burner stance. So again, technology continues to royal. But again, it's going to be interesting to see how some of these social uh, networking platforms handle the upcoming election, because uh, clearly focus is going to be on them, their behavior, and to the extent that they are impacted or allow their platforms to impact the upcoming election. That'll be a clear issue for Washington. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.